You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is your host, Mike White, bringing you an interview with Anthony James. Don't know the name? You'll definitely know the face. Anthony James was a villain in quite a few films and ends up being one of the nicest guys that I have ever had the pleasure of talking to. He has a memoir out called Acting My Face. He definitely knows that he has been the bad guy in many, many films because of that terrific mug of his. So let's go ahead and play this interview. I apologize. There were some technical difficulties around the way. Uh, Mr. James was a very good sport about it. Thank goodness for that and I hope that you enjoy this interview with him. This wasn't your first book. You've written books before, or it was kind of like a book slash art project, correct? Yes, it was. No, I haven't written any books before. What you're referring to is an art book that came out about 20 years ago that was published by a, a house in Boston, as a matter of fact, before I had even considered moving here. And it was, uh, they did a wonderful job. Uh, it, it, it contained the earliest of my abstract paintings and also the earliest of my poetry, which are really from the 70s. And then they had asked me to write a text. So I didn't really want to write a text, uh, so I tried to make it as spare as possible. I, I don't like talking about paintings or poems. Uh, they should be self-referential. So I did write a, a short uh, text for it as well. And that came out in 1994. But other than that, uh, no, I've never written this. this the, the, um, the memoir is really the, the first prose uh, that I could call prose that I've ever written. Which is remarkable, I mean, because it is so well written, and I love oh, the way that you, you leave me hanging at the end of every chapter, you know, <laughs> make me want to read the next one. It's well, great. What was interesting about it, uh, for me anyway, is and I started writing it in 2008, January of 2008. Now, I didn't know that my mother was going to die in May of that year. And I, I, I saw, always saw my mother every day unless I was away on location. And so I'd asked her again about all the things that had happened back in Greece when she was a, a girl and meeting my father and everything that happened up to my birth, etc. And she always told the same stories. I'd heard the same stories over and over again. They were always exact. So I thought, great, you know, this is terrific. And then um, it, all, it got where I was already of age and I could remember on my own. And what was interesting is that once I finished it, I knew nothing about the literary world. And so I, I, I had some friends that, well, where can I submit it? What can I do? And I said, well, um, most literary agencies won't take unsolicited manuscripts, but I know someone who might, that sort of thing. And eventually it got to maybe six or seven agents in um, New York, one in Los Angeles, I think one out here. What was interesting about that was that they all said exactly the same thing. They said, we, we love the memoir. You have a very specific voice. Most memoirs are very generically written. But you should take your mother's story out and, and expand on the Hollywood part of the memoir. And, of course, I said the same thing to each one of them. I said, well, I, I, I can't do that. This is not a Hollywood memoir. It is a memoir in the classic sense that contains within it a Hollywood memoir. But it's not a Hollywood memoir. The most important part for me, the heart of the whole story, is my mother's story. So I'm sorry I can't do that. And they all said the same thing. Well, if you change your mind, please you know, send it. It would love to represent it. No one can get it published. And then I kept putting it back in the drawer. A couple of years went by. 
And then um, someone that I knew who hadn't seen in years in New York uh, called her, what's going on? Are you still writing poems? <laughs> that sort of thing. I told her about the, the, the memoir. And she said, oh, you know, my husband is friends with a guy who is a, a vice president of a major publishing house. And uh, we can get him to read it because we have dinner with him every week. So I thought, oh, my gosh, that would be great. So I thought, wonderful. This guy was really, really nice. He asked for a hard copy. I mailed it to his office. He read it. He wrote me back an email. And I explained to him what all the agents had said. And he said to me, um, I, I know you want to honor your mother. I mean, she's just an extraordinary person. And so um, I, I know why you want to do that, but I agree with the agents. You should take her out. This is about selling a book. And I thanked him. You know, thank him very much, and sincerely so, and put it back in the drawer again. <laughs> and that's when, a little while later, uh, a friend of mine said, well, why don't you try University Press? And I said, why? They only do their professors' books. I said, no, no, that's not true. They do all kinds of books, and they have great distribution, sometimes worldwide. So let me go online and see if I can narrow it down to a couple. I said, okay. So he called, he, called, he called me and said, okay, these are the two that are narrowed it down to University of Illinois, University Press of Mississippi. Uh, they, all they want is a couple of chapters and a synopsis. I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send the whole manuscript. I'm going to explain to them why it's been rejected. And if they still want to uh, read it, that's great. He said, okay, that's fine. Better than your drawer. I send them out. And within a couple of weeks, I get this wonderful letter from Alila Salisbury, who I didn't know at the time was the director of all the publications at the University Press of Mississippi. She wrote a wonderful letter, how much you love the memoir, again, a very specific voice. Um, and then she said, uh, I can't imagine it without your mother's story. So if you don't have a publisher interested at the moment, please call me. And she said, oh, and by the way, thank you for <laughs> telling me about all your rejections. And I thought, well, I guess writers don't mention their rejections when they're submitting a, a manuscript to a publisher. But the upshot was, as we now know, is that she took it on and um, did not give it to an editor, um, uh, talked with me, said, well, uh, it would be nice if you could bring in your mother here a little bit, you know, in, in your own way. I couldn't believe what I was hearing. So uh, it was great. The, the people there at the press were just extraordinary, all of them, all of them. Um, Leela, uh, the guy who did the, the, the beautiful um, art direction, uh, Pete Halverson, um, the other Pete Tongay, who was the, um, get, who was the um, copy editor, and uh, Steve Yates, who was, was the assistant. Uh, director and uh, what is the marketing director um, of the, all just wonderful. I still keep in touch with some of them, and then that's what happened. And then it came out uh, last uh, last March. What's been the reaction to the book? Well, it's a little hard to tell. Well, the, the customer reviews have been great. Amazon, there must be twenty seven of them, and they're all five star reviews. Uh, Barnes and Noble. Um, a lot of other places that I know about, people will say, oh, go to this one, go to that one. So aside from a couple that were kind of, well, the, this is very funny. The one on, um, out of the 27 on Amazon, all five star, but the one that isn't is one star. 
but it's ironic because the guy talked about, I had no idea that Mr. James could write such a wonderful book. about I think he may have pushed the wrong button <laughs> because it sounds like a five-star review. <laughs> it's very funny. You should go, you should go look at it. it, it you, you laugh because uh, it, it doesn't sound like a one-star review. <laughs> anyway, um, and they have distribution. They said, uh, someone said, go to a certain website, you look up it in Japan and, and, and Scandinavia, and what you see on the webpage is everything's in Japanese, except for the cover of the book, I mean the titles obviously, and then the summary of the book that's in English um, is there in English. But everything else around there is in Japanese. Or in Scandinavia you see Finnish or you see whatever. So I was, um, I was as you can well um, uh, imagine, uh, very surprised. But here's the thing, answering your question. Um, when it came out a year ago, March, their fiscal year is June the 30th. So when I got the first uh, royalties, it was for three and a half months, meaning from uh, March the 14th to 15th to the end of June, June the 30th. Now, they sold about half of the edition. I, I can't raise in my kind of a small edition. Um, but that's, what I, that's the only thing that I know. I won't know again until August, which will cover an entire year. That's how it actually has done uh, in terms of uh, sales. So I don't know, really. I, I can only tell you what happened for that first three and a half months. I'm so glad that you kept your mother in the memoir because it is just so great to have her story as well as your story. And I was kind of afraid when I started to read it because there were too many times where I read um, either biography or an autobiography and you get that obligatory thing about the person's parents and their grandparents. <laughs> and it lasts for the first chapter and then that's it. And then occasionally they'll go back to the parents every once in a while. And But it was so nice that your mother's story was so interwoven with your story and just especially you two going out west and the sacrifices that she made to yeah. help help you in your career and the sacrifices you made to help her as well was just fantastic yeah well she she was an extraordinary person and um, as I say in the dedication which is not an exaggeration whatever is good in me is a gift from her and, and that's for certain so, um, yes, yes, and, and I never would have published it without, uh, without uh, her story in it. And that's why it's extraordinary that Leela would be so uh, moved by my mother's story and um, wanted, it, uh, wanted it there and even more at times. She said, well, what did your mother think about this? <laughs> what did you think about that? And that was it. So, um, and, and yes, it's, it's, a, it's a very funny notion. The idea. Oh, and the other thing was, I had to laugh because, uh, in the, I don't know if you recall in the, in the preface, I wrote that the two elements that I would not address would be my romantic relationships out of my, my uh, respect for the privacy of the women with whom I had them, and also I would not say anything bad about anyone that I'd worked with. And when I mentioned that to a couple of people, they said, well, those are the only two reasons people buy memoirs. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, that may be, but that's the way this one's going to be. Right. And uh, so, you know, you, you, each of us have our own way, and uh, hopefully we can we can do it our own way. And even if we fail, we can take some sense of consolation or even pride that that we we, we didn't um, give up. You know, what, what was what was really true for us. And someone asked me, someone said to me, well, 
why why did you write the memoir? Over the years after my retirement, I've been retired now 20 years, and during the, they said, well, you know, so how did you get in the hospital? And I told them about getting on a train with my mother and, and going to Hollywood. And I said, my gosh, that's a great story right there. You should write a sorry, memoir. And, uh, and I did, well, I didn't want to do that. I, I knew it was going to be way, way too hard because of my mother's story. But finally I did, and, and, and I answered a couple of people who asked me that question. It's because after my, my mother's death, uh, I had already begun writing it, as I said, and I had to keep writing it uh, even after her death. And, and I realized that I could have stopped at that point. And, but I realized that, like what you've just said, that in writing it, I knew that my mother would always be within me. Her spirit would always be within me. It would never go away. But when it was printed out and someone some, somewhere else reads it in some strange way to me, she lives outside of myself as well in some other kind of reality. And that's very important to me. And just what you said, in some strange way, in some other reality, my mother for the time that you were reading the book, existed for you. And that's, uh, that helps me a little bit. Do you think that the writing of the memoir helped kind of with the grieving process as well? No. No, this whole idea of closure is an American fantasy. There's no European or other person on the planet who would think of the idea of closure, that the plane goes down with your mother or your father or your children or whoever, and if you go down to the ocean uh, where the plane went down and you kind of walk around and, and you get closure, there's no such thing as closure. You, the, 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 I guess the equation is the amount of love that you feel for what you lose is the amount of pain that you will feel. There's no other way. And that stays with you until you get I wanted to ask you a little bit about some of the stuff that you've done. Um, when it comes to In the Heat of the Night, I couldn't think of a more diverse cast of main characters that are in that film than the people that are in that. What were kind of some of the acting styles and what were some of the things that, because you were still a young actor at the time, what were some of the things that you were picking up from some of these guys, some of these heavy hitters that were in this film? I, I tried to, to, to watch scenes being shot even when I wasn't on call, just go down and see what was going on, watch Steiger work, watch Poitier work. Um, uh, and and I, I tried to get a sense, not intellectually, but a sense of... Uh, what would you call it, about absorption, how they dealt with things. Because in film, you don't get a chance really. I mean, nowadays they have video. You can play something back on the set and see how you look on a. But in those days, that was pretty rare. Um, so, but I tried really to come to terms in my own way. I had my own sense of, of, about acting. That was my own, my own natural kind of way of being. And so I tried to, to stick to that. Because what work, may work for a Rod Steiger may not work for me. What was um, Warren Oates like to work with? Oh, he was great. He was great. The most <clears throat> outgoing, funny, <clears throat> um, sweet guy. And uh, I, I had a great, great time uh, with him. Uh, also, what was interesting, I have to bring my mother back into this for a second, because when we went back to Los Angeles to shoot some office scenes, Rod Steiger. So I asked for permission to bring her on the set one day, 
And they said, of course, I'll bring it on the set. And, uh, and I did. And, of course, it was like Disneyland to her. And all the cables and the lights and all of that sort of thing. And she was very quiet. And she looked around. So finally, I, I got um, uh, Sidney Poitier to come over to her and, and introduced him to her. And uh, my, mother, my mother said to him <clears throat> in her Greek accent, Oh, you know, Mr. Poitier, you look the more handsome in the real life than in the movies. And he said, oh, well, you know, thank you, you know, thank you. Later on, I brought Rod Steiger over and uh, introduced him. And uh, my mother said to him, oh, you know, Mr. Steiger, you look the more younger in the real life than you do in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> she was very charming. They loved her. And she was very diplomatic, obviously. And uh, she had a great time. Now, uh, S.O. Warnos, they were, they were all wonderful. Sidney Poitier was wonderful. Rod Steiger was wonderful. Um, Rod Steiger, which you know from the, from the book, would take me to town where he was doing errands and stuff, and uh, I'd be sitting in the hotel lobby not working. He wasn't working. He, he was very, they were all very kind to me, everyone. The other two people who were also their first roles were Scott Wilson and Quentin Dean. Uh, that was their, they were introduced in that film as well. So uh, it wasn't just me. There were three of us who were doing this for the first time. I like that, you know, you kind of play with yourself being typecast, you know, the, from the name of the book all the way on down, especially when it's like, get me an Anthony James type. <laughs> right, right. When do you think that you were first kind of typecast? Was it from that first role onward? Yeah, yeah, because what happens is, what, especially when it's a film, I have to also say, because, and I mean this in the profoundest way, everything that has to do in the arts, whoever is successful, it's, it's luck. It's all luck. All of it. Even if you have some kind of talent, you didn't choose to have the talent. We're born with aptitudes. Some people have math aptitudes to the degree of Einstein, and some people, et cetera, et cetera. So if any kind of an aptitude, we're born, we, that's not even our choice. We're lucky, or we're not. No matter how hard you work, you're not going to be Michael Jordan or Einstein or Marlon Brando or whatever. So it's all about luck. I lucked out. My first job was in this movie. It turned out that it was going to be it was a, a huge hit commercially and and um, uh, uh, and uh, critically. And so um, they know you can do the role, and they want to be safe. <laughs> so they're going to keep casting you in those kind of roles, unless somebody, for whatever reason. Um, wants to say, oh, hey, come here, I'm going to do this, I'm going to give you a part where you don't have to you know, be the bad guy. And uh, that's okay, because I, I, I did the best that I could um, with whatever I was given. I think the first time I really re remember you standing out for me was High Plains Drifter. I think that was the first time that I saw you and really noticed you because you were just so intense in that film and surrounded again by just a fantastic group of actors. It was great that you kind of had that towards the beginning of your career and then having Unforgiven towards the end of your career. Was the experience of working with Clint Eastwood the same when you're early on versus later on? Because I've heard that he's a very methodical director. Yes, but it was the same both times, and, and um, well, what's, what's great about him is that uh, being an actor, he, he has a sense of actors, obviously, and um, 
it doesn't direct the way other directors uh, direct actors. Um, if he's going to say something to you, you know, in that scene where you are, he just kind of, you know, he just and he walks away. Um, and uh, he's very sensitive. And, and I, you probably remember um, and Unforgiven when I write about that when he didn't want me to be that that strong with Gene Hackman because he wanted Gene Hackman to have his his domineering position in the town. But when I explained to him why the character was so angry with him because he was so upset, it overrode his good intentions. He knew that Little Bill could be really, really a crazy person, but he he lost it because he lost this woman that he cost him all this money to bring. So, and he understood that. And so rather than trying to force the issue because he understood what I was doing, he asked Gene to just turn his back when I go into my little tirade, which was great because if he got Gene to do what he wanted him to do and keep that that um, domination, and I got a chance to have my little tirade because it made it seem as if whatever I had to say wasn't important to Little Bill. And it gave me a different color when I, go, when I went to have that scene with Gene Hackman out of his house, and I was very obsequious and shy, and I was afraid to tell him what I had to tell him. And so it gave the character some color as well. But that's, that's what a wonderful director does. And he came up with the solution instantly. So um, uh, he's, a, he's a very soft-spoken, really sweet man. And he was that way uh, at High Plains Drifter as he was on Unforgiven. And, and if you probably remember from the Unforgiven part of the book, my agent didn't submit me. <clears throat> they had cast, or Clint had cast, the entire film. They were on location in Calgary, Canada, and he had not cast Skinny. And one night, he and Francis Fisher, who was his girlfriend at the time, um, went to see Nicky Gun to an ass. And he saw me in that, and he said, oh, that's skinny. And he told me that. You know, he told me that uh, on the set. And he said, I laughed so hard when you went in to kill Priscilla Presley and you started singing the way we were. He said, I almost fell off my seat. And he said, I said, that's skinny. That's how I got into the movie. <laughs> uh, I was so glad to see you show up and make a gun two and a half. That was just amazing. Did you get to play comedy often, or was that one of the few times? One of the few times, although back in those gun smokes, uh, there was a hillbilly character that it was Victor French that they used to bring um, back for four seasons for one you know one episode these hillbilly characters would come back and and they turned them into straight comedies and Victor French was just a great great person a wonderful actor and and the, the, the oh gosh Lane Bradbury who played our sister uh, they were great they were great so so they were straight slapstick comedies with Festus and I had a great time doing those. What were some of your other favorite roles that you played? Well, we talked about, talking about somewhere in there, I, I said something about there are great miracles in the world, parting the Red Sea, uh, this and that, the other, the Colossus, whatever, and my playing a hero in a show. And it was um, the science fiction show. Uh, Buck Rogers? Buck Rogers, yes. And one of them, a two-parter, I turn out to be the hero at the end. I save, I save everybody. <laughs> so that was pretty unusual. I love the stories that you tell about working with uh, Bette Midler on uh, Burnt Offerings and Escape from Witch Mountain. No, Just... you, 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 know, you mean, you mean uh, Betty Davis? Oh, I'm sorry. Why did I say Bette Midler? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think Bette Midler would take it as a compliment. I'm not sure Betty Davis yeah. would take it as a compliment. <laughs> I even was just looking at a picture of her, and I said the wrong yeah. name. Oh my god! Yeah. Yeah. 
Oh, she was great. As you know, as you know from the from the memoir, she was uh, she was terrific. She and, and I was so lucky because working on burnt offerings with her, I didn't have really much to do except scare her to death uh, without saying a word, just smiling. I scared her to death. Uh, but I got a chance to work with, as you know, on Return from Witch Mountain. We were together for nine weeks, and uh, I was one of the few people, uh, again, as you know from the memoir, to, to go into her dressing room. And we talked uh, for hours. I loved her. She was great. She was tough, but she was sweet, and she was smart, and she had great stories to tell. And she got me a show at the Disney Art Library, a solo show, which I didn't know uh, that she had done until so I got a phone call after the movie was, was over. So I, I loved her a lot. Yeah, she was great. Yeah, I just went back and rewatched that one, and that is still such a fun movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's uh, it, it's it's sad because you think back and you see. Sometimes when I, I watch something on Turner Classics, I, and I think all of these people are dead. They're moving around. They're talking. They're laughing. It's fine. They got their persona, their star. They're charming. They're, they're dead. They're all dead. A film is a dead medium, unlike theater. But but somehow it has a certain life, obviously. And we believe it. We believe that it's true, that they're alive. Kind of like uh, with your book, you know, people seem to go on living through their films. Exactly, yeah. When people recognize you on the street, what do they generally recognize you for? Well, that's a little unusual because when someone who's maybe in their 30s says, um, oh, I saw you on Gunsmoke, or I saw you in High Plains Drifter, I'm thinking, that's impossible. You know, they're, they're 30 or whatever, because I forget that there are all those cables shows that just show the old television shows, or t- t- Turner, they show, and they show a lot of those films a lot. So there are young people who say, oh, I saw your Bonanza, <laughs> or, or Starsky and Hutch, or Charlie's Angels, or something. And I'm, I'm taken aback at first until I have to remind myself that um, uh, you can still see those now, you know, any day. And, uh, and it's, oh, sorry, it would be a great bad guy, my favorite bad guy, or, oh, what was it like to work with Jack Lord on, they're talking about the original, <laughs> uh, stuff like that. So I, you know, I, I saw them, and, you know, talk with them and uh so it's it's, it's really nice you know, it's, they're, they're always very kind and polite and and i still get i even after 20 years of retirement i get photographs from all over the world um where they get i don't have these photographs where they get them is beyond me so, you know to sign them and, and send, i always write a little note and send, uh, from uh, again from japan or south america um uh, I, just the other day, uh, I got one from Poland, one from um, Germany, or two from Germany, and uh, one from England, I think. Uh, again, with photographs in it to sign and, and, and send back. So um, they, those things are shown, you know, everywhere. Pretty amazing. Amazing, yeah. Whenever we have anybody on the show that has worked on Columbo, I always have to ask him about it, just because Columbo is one of my favorite shows of all times. What was it like working on Prescription Murder? Well, that was my first you know, role in television. I had my two one-liners when I got my SAG card. That was even before in the year of the night. And that was, and that was funny. I, I tried to, uh, I don't remember what I wrote about it in the, in the memoir, but, but what was interesting about that is I, I, I come into the office to confess to a murder that I did not commit. And to Peter Falk and Gene Barry, who's standing against the wall behind me somewhere. And so the director says to me, well, um... 
you know, he comes in, he's this guy who needs attention, he figures if he confesses to a murder, he'll have his picture in the paper, blah, blah, blah. I didn't say anything, but I thought, well, you know, that's the most obvious. So what I conjured up for my motivation was that he was a terribly depressed young man who wanted to die and didn't really know how to do it. He was too scared to shoot himself in the head or take drugs or slash his wrists. But in his strange madness, he thought that if he confessed to a murder, they'd put him in an electric chair and he would die and they would do it for him. So that's what I use. Now, the audience would never know this. But what that does is it changes the way your body language is, is elicited, the way you say your lines, and hopefully it, it, you say them and your pauses are in a, a much more interesting way so it comes off as personality traits, even though the audience does not know that you have a very specific motivation that they will never know. And um, it was very funny because after we shot the scene, Peter Falk leaned over and he said, I can't do a Peter Falk, but he leaned over and he said, uh, you don't want to do it the way the, uh, the director told you. And I said, no. He said, yeah, it is a lot better. So cut to 20 years later almost at the um, Oscar party for Unforgiven, the only Hollywood party I've I had ever gone to in almost 30 years, and I went out of, because Clint invited me, and I went out of respect for him. And so uh, I, there I was at this Oscar party, and here comes Peter Falk with Tony Curtis, of all people. And I decided if you would remember, so I walked over, and I said, oh, Mr. Falk, uh, and before I could finish my sentence, I said, oh, yeah, you're the, uh, the guy who confessed a murder he didn't commit. So that's my Peter Falk story. He, he was great. He was great. See, I've been very lucky. I've been very lucky with the people that I work with because a lot of it has to do with what you bring as a person, as a personality. They, anyone that I work with, from the people I had been warned about, like Richard Harris or Oliver Reed or people, or even Betty Davis, um, they're warned about. You've know, you got to be careful. Richard Harris will hurt you in a, uh, in, a, in a fight scene, blah, 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 blah. Never had a problem. Because they got it right away. I wasn't there to upstage anyone. I wasn't up there to be a smart guy or a wise guy or to be obsequious or to, or to, or to, or to chat somebody up or say things that were glorious about them that, that, that obviously I didn't really feel. No, I was really there to do the best possible job I could do with the character I was given. And they got that right away. So I never had a problem. So are you keeping up with your painting? What are you doing these days? Yeah, I keep on my painting. I'm always writing poems. I shouldn't say always, but that's something that's important to me. And um, as a matter of fact, as you probably remember, I have uh, some of the poems um, as epigraphs to the six parts of the, um, of, of the memoir. And uh, so I think my next project is going to see if I can have a, a collection um, published. It's very hard to do because... I know nothing about the poetry world, but one, one thing I do know, or perhaps two things, is that there are more poets and more poetry magazines than there are poetry readers. So that makes a very small profit margin. But I think I'm going to give it a try. Well, I figure as long as you're doing something you love, there's exactly. nothing wrong with that. Well, hey, I don't want to keep you too long. This has been wonderful talking to you. My pleasure. I'm so glad that we finally got a chance to talk. And uh, you don't have to worry about me. I'm retired. I'm not getting up in the morning.
the circus on parade. Seldom close enough to see. I wander through an angry crowd. Wonder what's become of. I'm the f- 